Welcome all to the um, first session of the South Asia Seminar for this term. It's a great pleasure to welcome back uh, uh, Yakub Khan Bangash, who um, uh, not so many years ago graduated from this university and indeed from the Faculty of History. Um, he's done a great deal uh, in the meantime, including publishing a book, A Princely Affair, on the accession of the princely states to Pakistan, a subject that had never really received any attention. Um, and I always thought particularly interesting about that book is his discussion of Baluchistan, uh, which I'm glad to see he's now taking forward in the press and elsewhere uh, to make the connection between the accession and the problems of the accession of the state of Kalat to Baluchistan, uh, in Baluchistan to Pakistan and the uh, subsequent history of um, Baluchistan, including separatism there. Um, he has been uh, head of the history department at, at Foreman Christian College in Lahore and is now the head of humanities at a new university, the, the Information Technology University, also in Lahore, and will be speaking to us today on a, a new subject, um, the making of a constitution, Pakistan, and the question of sovereignty. Welcome. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Faisal, for with this. And lovely to be back here uh, on the other side. <laughs> um, you know, I was a student here and was, you know, sitting right there for about four to five years. So it was quite quite in 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 interesting. And, of course, Faisal was my uh, DPhil examiner. So uh, thank you for passing me <laughs> also. <laughs> um, well, what, I, what I'm going to talk to you today uh, about uh, is an article which I have yet to finish. Uh, so, I, so I should put that out there. Uh, it's for a new thing that I'm working on, and that is, uh, so, so the context of that is, um, I'm looking at how the country of Pakistan was Im imagined after it was actually created. Uh, and the reason being is that uh, there's a lot of work being, uh, a, a lot of work has been done on Pakistan before 1947, including Fessel has, has, has a book on it, uh, and a couple of other people, people too. Uh, but very little work has been done on how uh, the, you know, the founders of the country actually imagined it after it was created, you know, after the Muslim Zion actually became a reality with a territory. Uh, what happened? Um, so I am looking at the debates of the Constituent Assembly of Pakistan, uh, 1947 to 56, and really trying to understand what kind of topics they were talking about, why they were talking about those topics, and the implications of those topics on uh, the state and polity of Pakistan. And um, so I'm speaking on, on one aspect of it today. Now, the background to this is that this was um, actually a result of a, of a grant that I received from the Planning Commission of Pakistan that wanted me to look at the economic side of the constitution. Um, and this, is, this was a couple of years ago. At that time, I had just begun the project. And I, and I said, well, of course, you know, it, it must have an economic side, you know, and they must have debated about it uh, because they did debate for about nine long years. Uh, but when I began, and looking at it, I realized, oh, they don't really talk about the economic side of it. Uh, in nine years, uh, five lines uh, refer to uh, property rights and nothing really to the system of economics that they want to have. So I began thinking about, well, uh, what else is there uh, that can be looked at in economic terms? And uh, then I uh, sort of looked at a framework which has been developed by, by people like Douglas, Douglas North um, and Weingast and others, uh, looking at the constitution as an institution. And that is what I'm going to look at today, the, the constitution as uh, the supreme national insti institution. And 
how one uh, bit of the constitution, which is the objector's resolution, which was passed in 1949, um, how that and its, in, and its uh, approach towards sovereignty affects the state and polity of Pakistan. Uh, so the constitution, of course, as I just said, is the supreme national institution. Um, Hayek has has uh, called the constitution a set of rules concerned with the internal organization of the state and the constraints it puts on act- on actors uh, of different kinds. Uh, Kelsen further di- differentiates between a constitution and a grand norm. Uh, where the constitution is the rule-making framework, the grand norm is the consensus formed from the core values of the society which define the nation. So you have the constitution as the national institution and behind the constitution is the grand norm um, from where the constitution actually emerges. So the grand norm is the the consensus. Uh, An understanding of constitution making, therefore, is central to our understanding of how constitutions shape incentives and, of course, the state in the future. And that takes us into the realm of constitutional economics, which looks at the process of constitution making as an endogenous variable. In other words, the makers of the constitution themselves are responding to certain incentives while they bargain over the rules they will formalize. In effect, such a process establishes the constraints for future rulemaking and policymaking. So this article focuses on the objectives resolution, and I argue that the objectives resolution was the spirit, uh, that is the grand norm upon which the constitution of Pakistan of both 19 uh, of 1956 and 62 and the current one of 1973 was based. And therefore, you need to an- analyze, well, what did this objectives resolution say to understand, uh, quote, the rules of the game as they were later formulated? Now, um, and I'll give you a bit of the background here. Well, why is it necessary to look at it in this particular way? Um, here I've, um, as I said earlier, uh, following very much uh, uh, the work of Douglas, Doug, Doug, Douglas North, who describes institutions as, quote, the humanly devised constraints that structure political, economic, and social interaction. They consist of both informal constraints and formal rules like constitutions, laws, and property rights, unquote. The non-existence or the weakness of these institutions then forms the main reason for the divergence in economic development in the world, North argues. For example, both Spain and England were at the same level of economic development in the 17th century. However, their following trajectory was markedly different. North explains that this was because of the existence of institutions in England, which, quote, created an institutional framework which evolved a complex impersonal exchange necessary for political stability, end of quote. While in Spain, quote, personalistic relationships became the key. So Douglas North argues that the reason uh, of the divergence uh, between England and Spain was the fact that impersonal and stable and clear uh, uh, rules, uh, constitutional frameworks developed in Britain as compared to Spain, and that is why Britain uh, developed economically and uh, um, Spain didn't. Taking the argument of the, sense of the centrality of institutions, uh, North and Weingast further traced the development of institutions as the tussle between the crown and parliament from the end of the Tudors to the Glorious Revolution, and argued that the limitation put on the arbitrary powers of the crown, the primacy of common law courts in economic affairs, and the control of taxation by parliament were the determining factors in stabilizing the capital markets and bringing on economic growth. The emergence of political and civil liberties they maintain were inextricably linked with economic freedom. 
and unless these rights were constitutionally guaranteed by the now king in parliament, economic growth was not possible. They point out that before the glorious revolution, the crown was unable to raise funds and had to resort to forced loans, whereas in the aftermath of 1688, not only did the crown become solvent, it gained access to an unprecedented level of funds. North and Weingast therefore hold an enforceable constitution, enforceable statutes in the United Kingdom as a central institution and explain. And I, this is uh, a couple of lines of uh, the quotation. Uh, a, a critical role of the constitution and other political institutions is to place restrictions on the state or sovereign. These institutions in part determine whether the state produces the rules and regulations that benefit a small elite and so provide little prospects for long-term growth, or whether it produces rules that foster long-term growth. Put simply, successful long-run economic performance requires appropriate incentives not only for economic actors but for political actors as, as well. Institutional economists take the constitution as an exogenously given uh, as ex a exogenously given and examine the way it shapes incentives for individuals to behave in a certain way. Charles Beard wrote in his influential book, An Economic Interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, that the U.S. Const Constitution was, quote, an economic document drawn by, with superb skill by men whose property interests were immediately at stake, end quote. While some of Beard's arguments and the functions of the U.S. Const Constitution have since been, been challenged, uh, what is clearly patent, even to his critics, is that the U.S. Constitution was a, a document of political equilibrium amongst competing special interest groups, and that the separation of powers was a central feature in making the Constitution an economic document. Buchanan further describes the study of constitutional economics as an attempt to explain the working properties of alternative sets of legal, institutional and constitutional rules that constrain the choices and activities of economic and political agents. However, constitutions are not given in any sense of, sense of the word. While in institutional economics approach examines the implications of a given constitution on uh, 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 economic development, several scholars argue that the very process of constitution making carries within itself the logic of economic incentives. So a constitutional economic analysis really has to begin with the process of rule making. And also uh, specifically to, to look at the choice among constraints. And this is the kind of the broad framework I am looking at uh, while an analyzing the, con the uh, debates of the Constitutional Assembly and more specifically in this case, the objectives re resolution. Now, a little bit about sort of, you know, uh, uh, the context to contextualize like the Pakistan case. Uh, now, Pakistan was a very pe peculiar country when it was born on the 15th of August, 1947. Uh, the idea of a separate country for the Muslims had been around for, for a long time and, you know, um, there has been a recent book that very, very much argues that, uh, though without reference to the Muslim League uh, to a great extent that did actually finally create Pakistan. But there were lots of competing ideas amongst Indian Muslims um, what uh, their future should be like. Uh, whether there were to be one or more Muslim states, were they to be inside or outside the Commonwealth, uh, were they to be completely separate and independent from other parts of South Asia, it was very uh, un unclear. In, in fact, the Lahore Resolution um, that uh, a lot of people call as the basic document for the creation of Pakistan was itself very vague, and a, a lot of people have actually shown that. Uh, but I think a lot of that vagueness was quite deliberate so that... Uh, um, uh, Later politicians uh, and 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 especially Jinnah, the the founder of the country, had a lot of uh, maneuvering um, space in their discussions afterwards. Now, the creation of uh, 
when when the when Pakistan was created on the 15th of August 1947, uh, what was interesting was that over a quarter of its population was non-Muslim. The, in Western Pakistan, the percentage of non-Muslims was 24.6%, while it was 30.1% in East Bengal and Silet, making a total of 28.1% for the whole of Pakistan. The mass exodus of the people had just begun, and it was very unclear how many Muslims would remain behind in this now homeland for the Muslims. By 1948, as conditions improved and the exchange of population largely accomplished, the Muslim population in Western Pakistan dropped to about 5%, while in East Bengal, the percentage dropped to about 20%. Hence, by the end of 1948, the non-Muslim population of Pakistan was about one-sixth of the total. So that's quite a dramatic decrease, uh, especially... Uh, in in the western part of part of the country, where from nearly 25%, it came down to 5%. Now, the Constituent Assembly of Pakistan uh, was a very peculiar institution. It was at once the constitution-making making body, uh, and hence had a very special claim of sovereignty, but was also the federal legis- legislature for the country. Its members were elected in 1946 on a limited franchise from constituencies which formed the part of the Dominion of, of Pakistan, and therefore, its membership was just not limited to the, to the Muslim League mem- members. It also had uh, a sizable number of non-Muslims. So on the 11th of August 1947, when the first session of the assembly was, was called, there were 16 non-Muslim members of the assembly out of a total of 58, forming about 27.5% of the assembly. Not, a, not, not an insignificant number. Therefore... Uh, when the founder of the country and the governor general designate addressed the assembly on that day, he was cognizant of the fact that this country was going to have a significant non-Muslim pop- population. And here in the paper, I have that long quote about uh, Jinnah declaring that uh, citizenship shall be the basis of the country rather than religion. Um, and the reason for that, I really, really think is uh, that when he was giving that that speech, one third of his country was non, non, non-Muslim. And he couldn't have really disenfranchised them, you know, right at the at the moment of the creation of the country by 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 saying, well, you might be one third of the country, but you really don't have a say in the future of this country. So Jinnah had to really include the members of other religions in the new 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 state if uh, the new state had any chance of su- su- success. Uh, implied in this assertion, uh, interestingly, of course, was the belief that while Muslims were at risk under a Hindu-dominated India, non-Muslims uh, would not come under such pressures in a majority Muslim Pakistan. Hence, Jinnah modified the green flag of the Muslim League to include a white strip, which was supposed to be a, be a, be a quarter uh, and rep- represent the non-Muslim population of Pakistan. Uh, Liaquat Ali Khan, uh, the first Prime Minister of Pakistan, also echoed similar sen- sentiments as he unfurled the new flag and, and said, quote, As I visualize Pakistan, it will be a state where there will be no special privileges, no special rights for any one particular community or any one particular interest. It will be a state where every citizen will have equal rights and equal opportunities. End of quote. Despite the tone of Jinnah and Liaquat, from the first meeting of the Constituent Assembly, it was very clear that two interest groups had emerged in the Assembly on the basis of religion. The the Muslim group composed of the Muslim League members and the Hindu group now under the banner of the Pakistan National Congress. The conflict between these two interest groups then became the hallmark of the constitutional debates and voting on nearly every constitutional motion was along group lines, that is along religious lines. Uh, 
As the size of the Constituent Assembly increased because more Muslim members were added against vacant seats of the Hindu members and uh, more Muslim seats were added subsequently uh, representing the the refugees that have uh, that had come into Pakistan, the conflict between these two groups became more ac- ac- acute. As the Muslim group grew, it began to reflect a wide variety of views, especially in the wake of the unraveling of the Muslim League party post-independence. Hence, the costs associated with creating a constitution also went up because a more diverse Muslim group now had to be satisfied with the pro- pro- provisions of the constitution for enough votes to carry it through. Uh, And here, uh, one constitutional economist, uh, uh, Posner, uh, notes that, quote, the cost increases as the group membership becomes larger and the group becomes less cohesive. As the group becomes larger, the benefits to each member are likely to become smaller, and hence the individual's incentive to contribute to the group's endeavor will be weakened. Uh, So by about uh, 48, 49, you have this very large uh, Muslim group in the Constituent Assembly, but without interests that actually match each other. Uh, By that time, uh, yes, they are all in the all in the Muslim League, but the allegiance to to the Muslim League is quite weak. Uh, They are now um, aligning themselves along Punjabi or Bengali or Pakhtun lines, um, and more fractures are coming in. So for uh, a central government to carry any constitution through, it would have been a much harder work for anything to uh, uh, pass the pass the Constituent Assembly uh, because you had this uh, huge di- divergence of views amongst the Muslim members. Hence, uh, with the gradual decline of non-Muslim members to about 20% of the Assembly's mem- membership and the solidification of re- religious lines, it became harder and harder for the debate on the Constitu- Constitu- Constitution to move forward as the costs associated went dramatically up. The fact that the Constituent Assembly was also the federal legislature meant that the body could not meet often for constituent making. In, in fact, in 1947, it only met for one day uh, for constitution making. In the initial uh, few years of Pakistan, there, of course, were many administrative, legal and legislative issues that for the most of the time, the Constituent Assembly met as the federal legislature and not uh, as the, constitu- uh, as the const- constitution making, making body. Uh, another point here also is that for, for a long time, the government of Pakistan thought that the Government of India Act 1935, as adapted, was serving its purposes really well. So there was no real um, um, hurry to make a new const- const- constitution for the country because they could always use the Government of India Act as the interim constitution, and it was working perfectly fine, especially since uh, beginning in from about March 1948, the government had begun to centralize a lot of powers in their own hands. Um, and they were a bit concerned and scared, for that matter, uh, that if uh, there is a new const- constitution, they might have to make it more federal, more ec- Equitable, and therefore the central government would not hold that much power as it does under the 1935 government of, of India Act. So they weren't really uh, concerned about set, setting up um, a new constitu- constitution uh, uh, this, uh, for this one reason um, also. Now, the only task it accomplished uh, before the creation of the country uh, on the constitution was that they uh, set up a committee called the uh, on the uh, committee on the fundamental rights of citizens and minorities on the 12th of August 1947. Um, this was a committee in name because it didn't really meet for about a year and a half. Uh, and it only met once uh, to discuss uh, procedural issues of how the committee should meet. So after a year and a half, it, it just means to discuss pr- procedure and then adjourns again. So the first substantial effort 
at constitution making is uh, the presentation of the objectives resolution by the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Liaquat Ali Khan, on Monday, the 7th of March, 1949. Now, this document, which still forms uh, a part of the current 1973 constitution of Pakistan as Article 2A, uh, was, I argue, to set the tone and tenor for, the, for future const- const- constitution making in Pakistan. Uh, it seemed to be the work of much deliberation and thought, although it was introduced rather abruptly, uh, and was supposed to restart and even energize the constitution-making process in the in the country. Now, the re- the resolution was significant in several respects. First, uh, that this was the first document presented in Pakistan on the future constitution of Pakistan, and as such, revealed the intent of the. Uh, well, Jinnah was uh, uh, long, long dead by this by this time, uh, but Liaquat Ali Khan, the first prime prime minister, was very much in control. So it really clearly showed his intent. Uh, secondly. Since the, Pakistan was the first modern country to be set up on the basis of a community and was also the first Muslim country to be set up on such basis, uh, it was even more significant how Pakistan unders, unders, understood its um, place in the world as a Muslim country, uh, but as a modern nation state. Uh, because at the time of its inception, uh, Pakistan was one, the only, uh, after Turkey, the only other modern Muslim country that, that, that had emerged, and was also uh, the, the largest Muslim country in the world at that time. Third, thirdly, the articles of the res- resolution were the principles upon which the constitution was supposed to have been based, and as, as such carried critical importance in relation to fundamental rights, minority rights, economic and social rights, and other related matters, because this objective's resolution then clearly defined the parameters in which the rest of the constitution was to be framed. So to, it was a very critical foundational document. Now... Uh, uh, I'll just read a little bit of the objectives resolution. Well, actually, it's quite a short one, so I might read all of it, uh, just to give you an idea what kind of things it said. Uh, so it has about uh, seven, eight clauses, and I'll read from the beginning. So the first bit says, uh, Whereas sovereignty over the entire universe belongs to God Almighty alone, and the authority which is delegated to the state of Pakistan through its people for being exercised within the limits prescribed by him is a sacred trust. That's the first article. Uh, originally, um, um, I'm reading it from the original, and it uses the word God, God Almighty. That was later changed in the 80s to Allah Almighty uh, because of the fact that uh, even at that time, quite interestingly, I've uh, found a very interesting reference to that. Uh, there was a very deep understanding among sem- some members of the Constituent Assembly and the government that God and Allah are two different concepts. Uh, and very interestingly, this very modernist uh, uh, lawyer, uh, A.K. Brohi, who was the um, law minister of Pakistan, at that time, actually gave a very long statement uh, in the Constitutional Assembly describing the difference between God and Allah. Uh, so when uh, Ziaul Haq, uh, you know, changed the word from God to Allah, you know, a, a lot of people who work on Pakistan blame a lot of the problems of Pakistan and the Islamization actually on Ziaul, on Ziaul Haq. Uh, I have yet to find something that wasn't discussed in the first five to eight years uh, that Ziaul Haq didn't, didn't do. You know, Ziaul Haq was not really creative. I think he just went, went back and, you know, looked at these discussions and said, well, let's pick up all of them and make them a reality. Uh, so anyways, well, at that time, you know, they weren't too sure about God, but, you know, they, they still use, use the name. Uh, then uh, Article 2 says, This constituent assembly representing the people of Pakistan resolves to frame a constitution for the sovereign independent state of Pakistan. Quite simple. Uh, Article 3, wherein the state shall exercise its powers and authority through the chosen representatives of the people. Again, quite normal and useful. Uh, Article 4, 
wherein the principles of democracy, freedom, equality, tolerance, and social justice, as enunciated by Islam, shall be fully observed. Of course, this then laid the question, you know, raised raised the question later. Uh, well, who will tell you as in us enunciated by Islam? Uh, then uh, Article Five, wherein the Muslims shall be enabled, and uh, you know, I would say, look at the word enabled. So not helped or aided or whatever. Enabled, a very actionable word, to order their lives in the individual and collective spheres in accordance with the teachings and requirements of Islam, as set out in the Holy Quran and Sunnah. Um, again, very strongly worded statement, and uh, you know, um, um, when I was one reading it, I was reading it with a with a with a Shia friend of mine, and he said, "Well, what about our jurisprudence?" Well, of course, that doesn't factor in here. Uh, so that's another twenty five percent of of uh, Pakistan out. So by this time, you have about fifty percent of Pakistan that's it's not really talk really talking about. Um, the next article, wherein adequate provision shall be made for the minorities to freely profess and practice their religion and develop their cult their cultures. Uh, very nicely worded. Uh, another article, uh, wherein the territories now included in or in accession with Pakistan, and as such, uh, other territories that may hereafter be included in or accede to Pakistan shall form a federation where the, uni- where the units will be autonomous with such boundaries and limitations on their power and authority as may be pres- prescribed. A very interesting article, uh, uh, but one, it commits to a fed- federation, but then it doesn't re- really say the boundaries and limitations on their powers and authority as may be pres- prescribed. Again, by whom? Um, and that question, of course, comes later. Well, by Allah, of course, but then, you know, how is Allah really talking to, to people? You know, then that question comes in. Anyways, and we'll discuss that in a little bit. Uh, wherein adequate provision shall be made to safeguard the legitimate interests of minorities and backward and, rep- and repressed classes. Whenever I read this, I always wonder what are the legitimate and illegitimate interests mm. uh, and who decides again who, you know, which in- interests are legit- le- legitimate. Uh, wherein the integrity of the territories of the Federation, its independence, and all its rights, including its sovereign rights on land, air, and sea, shall be safeguarded. Uh, quite a sim- simple one. Uh, and the last one is, so that the people of Pakistan may prosper and attain their rightful and honoured place amongst the nations of the world and make their full contribution towards international peace and progress and happiness of humanity. So a, a very grand kind of a narrative. By the end of it, they wanted to change the world uh, so that we all sing Kumbaya one day uh, and have a good life. Uh, so, you know, quite, quite, quite creative uh, in what it wanted. And it's just one, it's, it's a one pager, but that one one pager really de- defined uh, for all time to come uh, practically what uh, Pakistan was going to be. And in, and in that sense, it is like a proto-constitution. I think its importance can really be compared uh, to the Charter of the Rights of Man you know, at the, uh, during the French Re- Revolution or the U.S. Bill of, Bill of Rights. Uh, it's as important a, a document in Pakistan. Now, uh, the rule of law, as argued by several scholars, is the core institution on the base, uh, uh, at the base of free societies. And therefore, we must analyze the constitu- constitu- constitution and how and does it provide any basis for the rule of law. Um, of course, there are as many conceptions about the rule of law as there are people defend- defending it. But while there is disagreement over the exact parameters of the ru- rule of law, uh, there is general agreement uh, that if you do not have rule of law, uh, you cannot have uh, e- economic de- development or political development or really, you know, by the end of it, social de- development. But here, since I'm look- looking at it through an economic lens, um, I'm focusing on how the rule of law is essential for uh, 
economic uh, development. And Henkin, uh, a theorist in constitutional e- economics, has defined the, the rule of law in a few broad, broad principles. So he argues uh, that the definition of constitutionalism and the rule of law uh, are the existence of one constitutional government, two, the, the separation of powers, three, the sovereignty of the people, four, judicial review, five, independent judiciary, six, government subject to a bill of individual rights, seven, the control of the police, eight, uh, civilian control of of the military, and nine, uh, no or very limited powers of the government to limit the operation of any part of the constitution. So unless there is a very strong framework for the rule of law, these theories are argue you really cannot have um, any economic development because stability only comes in through a very strong base of the rule of law. And if you have uncertain laws or if the parliament can change laws at will and is not constrained by anything, uh, then you will not have economic development because, you know, as a very simple uh, thing thing in in economics, no one will invest because they are not quite sure uh, where the place or the country is going. Now, uh, one thing which I also find really, really fascinating in, in, in the debate on the objectives resolution is, and I think that something needs to be underscored, that in the last 60, 70 years, there has been a lot of discourse on modern Islamic constitu- 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 constitutionalism. Uh, but when the objectives resolution was presented in 1941, there was hardly any discussion uh, beyond uh, Sharia and Fiqh over how um, a modern Islamic state needs to needs to emerge. So in that sense, it's a very uh, pioneering re- re- resolution because it's the first such document that really tries to understand, uh, you know, how uh, you can be a modern nation's nation state and yet be a very Islamic state. Uh, so all this discussion, you know, lead, leading on form, Maulana Modudi, who actually does write quite a lot about this, but he also begins to write just around that time and really takes 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 off in the 50s. So, you know, in, 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 in 1949, Liaquat Khan, I think, you know, perhaps becomes the first theorist of uh, uh, the, the modern Muslim nation state. And I think uh, that really needs, needs to be uh, uh, taken into consideration. Uh, the other thing I think that really needs to be taken into consideration is the fact that Pakistan was um, created in the backdrop of the Cold War. Uh, that is something that, you know, uh, even I, in my uh, earlier work, didn't really con- con- consider to a, to a large, large extent. But at that time, a lot of people in the world, uh, like Nehru in India, wanted to st- strike a third path. They didn't like the West, they didn't like the communists, but they wanted a new path, you know, the non-line movement, hence then uh, was uh, begun by uh, Tito and Nehru and uh, uh, and, and Sadat. Uh, but Pakistan wanted that third path to be uh, the Islamic idea of uh, the nation state. And they really wanted to ex- to experiment with that. And in fact, Yaqtil Khan uses the word, uh, the laboratory uh, for experimentation on these principles. So in some ways, you know, uh, uh, Pakistan uh, was the laboratory and perhaps the constitution, the guinea pig on it. Um, so, you know, uh, it was a very new thing that, that that was happening at that time. And a lot of the times, I think the problem has been in trying to understand Pakistan that we have looked at the whole development of Muslim uh, uh, thought after 1949 and then read it back into 1949 uh, when all these discussions weren't really happening. Now, uh, Islamic constitutionalism, as it was discussed at at that time, was really uh, located within the domain of Islamic Sharia at that time. Um, 
and therefore uh, the discussion that that they were having uh, only had um, very few connections with what the what the what the terrorists were talking about at that time and i'll just quickly touch on one of the terrorists because he was in pakistan and had just begun to write around around this 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 time just flag it and then i think move on because he is a topic on its on his own self uh, molana modudi uh, the founder of uh, the jamaat e islami and he said that the islamic state should be founded on three principles tawhid the unity of god risala the prophet uh, the prophethood of muhammad and his sunnah and khilafa the succession to muhammad and it is within these confines of the interpretation of the medinaite dispensation uh, and the sharia that modern in islamic constitutionalism should work so so that was one ver- version of it uh, that modudi was trying to do but i argue that the objective's resolution exactly at that same 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 time was trying to uh, look at something different now uh, one one of the things is well why an objective's resolution why not just make the constri- constitution on this uh, on this basis now the need i i think uh, for this objective's resolution was uh, because pakistan was promised on an islamic/muslim lines uh, but what does those lines mean and and again i think you have to read fessel's books to uh, to understand you know uh, what was that grand grand debate going on at that time but it just wasn't clear till the creation of pakistan that yes you want a country for muslims but what would be the role of muslims uh, you know would it be very islamic would it be based on the sharia would it not be based on the sharia which interpretation of sharia all these questions were really up in the air and you know by the 15th of august 47 they really had not been uh, 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 decided upon and jinnah himself i think was not very clear uh, but there are very uh, few indications of uh, perhaps along which lines jinnah was thinking of and i'll give give, give you one example uh, he gave this interview uh, to mr weldon james of uh, colliers weekly and uh, here is he uh, seriously talking about uh, islam and uh, law and this is like a long block block quote but i think that really uh, shows us uh, the way in which jana was thinking about all these terms and he said quote the the position of women is already equal in law to that of men it may be expected that their participation in civic affairs and in the professions will increase and that the institution of parda which is the result of tradition and not the teachings of the quran will gradually disappear you know i'm sure if you quote that now you'll you'll probably get shot in pakistan uh, but you know in the old old days it was a good idea since in this in the autocratic past a king or a chief chieftain might take to himself any beautiful women he saw and a man was wise indeed to keep his women hidden custom throughout the world tends to outlive the reason for its origin and this is no exception in the modern stage such a precautionary measure is not necessary and it is already on the way out and this is really you know in um, 19 you know uh, 46 47 and one i find it fascinating that, that that he thinks parda is on its way out where you know i would say hardly anyone thought that that was the case uh, and secondly he just explained away parda as something not islamic uh, but at that time you know a lot of people around him would actually think that there is a very important part uh, of uh, the islamic way of life and i think that is how uh, jina kind of gave a view to muslims that yes it will be islamic law but he was in fact talking about something else uh, uh, a very modernist perhaps uh, version of his of islamic law but then he did give some other pronouncements which again confused people so for example he was uh, talking to the karachi bar association on the occasion of prophet muhammad's birthday in january 9, 1948 and he said quote 
that he could not understand a section of the people who deliberately wanted to create mischief and made propaganda that the constitution of Pakistan would not be based on the basis of the Shariat. So here he is talking to the lawyers and saying, of course, it'll be based on the on the Shariat. Well, again, what kind of Shariat? And perhaps he had a very different understanding of uh, of Shariat there. And then he went he went on to say, and I and I quote. Islam in its idealism has taught democracy. Islam has taught equality, justice and fair play to everybody. What reason is there for to fear democracy, equality, freedom on the highest standard of integrity and on the basis of fair play and justice for everybody? Let us make it the future constitution of Pakistan. We shall make it and we shall show it to the world. So again, all the modern conceptions, you know, that people uh, take from perhaps Western, West, Western thought for that matter, he actually thought were very in, in, integral to the imagination, imagination of uh, uh, the of Islamic thinking at that time. So I think he was just uh, slightly unclear uh, what, what, what kind of a country uh, does he want to uh, make. Uh, added to that, I think there was this very interesting um, uh, dis- discussion at that time uh, that only divided the world uh, in either if you are theocratic or secular. And they didn't just sort of uh, think about the fact that you could be a very religious country, uh, just not be a theocracy. So every time the question of religion came, uh, Jinnah always assumed that that meant that Pakistan is going to be a, theo- a theocratic state. And he very clearly says that that's not the case. And I, and I, and I quote that in Feb- February 1948, at the, uh, in his broadcast to the American people, he says, quote, Pakistan is not going to be a theocratic state. That is rule of or by priests with a divine mission. We have many non-Muslims such as Hindus, Christians and Parsis and they're all Pakistanis and have equal rights and privileges and every right to play their part in the affairs of Pakistan in, in the Pakistan national state. But then a few days later in his, in his broadcast to the Australian people, he says, and I quote, the great majority of us are Muslims. We follow the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him. We are members of the Brotherhood of Islam, in which all are equal in rights, dignity, and self self respect. Um, end of quote. So, yes, you want all those broad principles, but then you're interpreting them as actually, in fact, Islamic principles, uh, and that might be your interpretation, but uh, um, perhaps not of everyone. And in fact, uh, there's once that uh, Jinnah even uses the, the word, and I was uh, um, I didn't know of this earlier uh, because I only thought Bhutto did. He actually used the word in March 1948, Islamic socialism. And yeah, she said that Pakistan shall be based on Islamic socialism. Uh, what that meant, again, you know, I think by the time of Bhutto, no one knew. And even now, at least his party has no clue. Uh, so, you know, that again, after 70 years, uh, remains a big quest- question mark. Now, Ekin Jinnah, Liaquat Ali Khan, the Prime Minister, uh, while introducing the Objectives Resolution, also noted that this was the moment second only to the independence of the country. Because, and I quote, by achieving independence, we not only won an opportunity of building up a country and its polity in accordance with our ideals, we now have an opportunity to make it a reality. Liaquat was very clear why Pakistan was made. It was made, quote, because the Muslims of this subcontinent wanted to build up their lives in accordance with the teachings and traditions of Islam, and because they wanted to demonstrate to the world that Islam provides a panacea to the many diseases which have crept into the life of humanity today. So again, a very interesting reference to the, to the West and the communist world, uh, that here we are going to forge a, a new way. 
And, um, well, let me just actually move on because I'm realizing the time's <laughs> going past very fast. Uh, Lakit again also emphasizes that, you know, uh, uh, Pakistan will not be a theocracy. And he says that, theoc- that while theocracy means God's government and that in the literal sense, the whole world is theocratic. But since Islam does not have any ordained clergy, quote, the question of theocracy simply does not arise in Islam. So I find it really fascinating that it's a very simplistic thing that theocracy means ruled by priests. Islam doesn't have priests and therefore it cannot have a theocracy by definition. Well, the reality perhaps is, I think, uh, very different. Um, And if. And, and of course, you know, as a, as a friend of mine just, just mentioned a couple of days ago on this, that uh, there's a very small section of Sunni Islam that doesn't believe in any kind of priest because a large section of the Brailvis have their peers. And then all Shia Islam has uh, clergy as the central feature. So again, if you look at the kind of Islam that, that was there in Pakistan, he is probably talking about, you know, 20, 30 percent of the... And I think in 1948, that is a, a very high percentage, you know, that I'm claiming. Uh, by that time, you know, it might actually be just 10 to... 10 to 20 percent that really had no concern about the clergy. Uh, a large majority of Pakistan did have um, uh, um, uh, either peers or uh, if you were a Shiite, um, have have your own own clergy. And I think, of course, the reasoning for this is that Liaka just under, understands theocracy and secular gov- government as in the context of the West, where, you know, if you don't have a pope, uh, then it's not a theocracy. Uh, and if you have a pope, then it, then it is a theocracy. So it's quite a, a, a very West, Western model. Um, and I find it quite fascinating that Liakad was quite a successful lawyer and pretty intelligent. So I'm not quite sure why uh, he was uh, trying to make that distinction. Now, uh, it was quite abruptly that the objectors re- re- resolution was in- introduced in- in- into the Constituent Assembly. The House had not met for a few months. Uh, and the federal budget had just been presented and debated. Hence, the leader of the Pakistan National Congress con- contended that he was taken unawares by the in- introduction of this re- resolution. And he, in fact, noted, uh, and I quote, that when we were in East Bengal uh, this time, we had no idea that such a resolution was to be brought forward. There was no indication of it in the agenda papers circulated. Uh, moreover, by the time of this resolution, a number of the Constituent Assembly had actually left, including the Premier of East Bengal. So you have a a very sizable percentage of the Constituent Assembly that is just not even uh, there. And at the final division of the House, uh, only 31 members out of a total of 69 were present and voted. So that's less than half of the total membership of the House. And here you have, you know, the basic run norm uh, that that is being um, uh, debated upon, and no one really cares about it. Um, and it's also fascinating that the members of the Congress uh, want this to be circulated for public opinion, and the government e- even shoots that down and says uh, that, no, we, we can't really allow that. Now, Mr. Chattopadhyay, who was a member of the Const- Assembly, uh, of course questions the reasoning behind presenting such a res- resolution and says, well, why don't you uh, go on and become and, and actually make the constitution? And he says, in fact, after the 14th of August, when Pakistan became a sovereign state, we thought that no such resolution was necessary. All things that matter is the Const- constitution itself and not a theoretical resolution on the aims and objectives of the constitution. However, described such, despite such protestations, Uh, The Prime Minister was clear that such a resolution was not only necessary, but critical. And I quote, uh, Lyakat said, it is absolutely necessary that before this House begins to frame the future constitution, the members should have an idea of what sort of a constitution and what type of the constitution they want. Now, the question of 
sovereignty, you know, and, you know, towards the end, last five minutes, I shall actually talk about what uh, the grand uh, sort of uh, plan is. Uh, so, so, so the question of sovereignty immediately rose up uh, because the first article, um, as you uh, might remember, say, uh, says that sovereignty over the entire universe belongs to God Almighty alone and that it has been delegated to the state of Pakistan but through its people, and that it is to be exercised within, quote, the limits prescribed by him. So God is sovereign. He has given that authority to the state of Pakistan. The people of Pakistan exercise it within the limits given by God. Uh, that's how sort of the top-down uh, structure works. Now, of course, in the modern nation state, the concept of sovereignty is of the people. Uh, and I won't go into the, the detail there because I'm sure all of us uh, know about it. So here... It's kind of turned it upside down by, by, by saying that the people do share in the sovereignty of God because God has de delegated it, but interestingly enough, not to the people, but to the state. And therefore, the people are not free agents. They cannot choose uh, what the elements of the so sovereignty will be, what the elements of the constitution will be, because God de de defines it for them. So this concept of sovereignty was hot hotly debated and contested by the two interest groups which had developed. And Lakat Ali Khan, uh, uh, however, emphasizes that the article defining sovereignty was critical and essential. And, I, and, uh, he, and, he's, and he said, and I quote, all authority is a sacred trust entrusted to us by God for the purpose of being exercised in the service of man, end quote. He further explained that this article does not mean any type of tyranny. In fact, Lyakat contended that, quote, the preamble fully recognizes the truth that authority has been delegated to the people and no one else, end of quote. But the members of the Pakistan National Congress were quick uh, to find problems with the, with, with the wording. Well, what if someone declared to be the, the chosen one of the, of the Almighty uh, and make himself supreme? Uh, why is the state before the people? You know, is it the deification of the state? Uh, some of them argued. Other people said, well, should the state then become supreme over the people? And the people are subject to this, to, to what the dictates of the state are. So there, there, there were all these kinds of quest, questioning of what was the real, nat real nature of uh, the constitution. And then, of course, Ms. Ms. Mr. Prem Hari Burma wondered if the limits prescribed by him, um, what were those limits? And what's really fascinating is that every single time uh, the members of the opposition ask a question and say, well, can you explain all these, all these bits? The typical answer from the government benches and especially from the prime minister is, well, of course, you know what these things are. And they keep saying, well, we don't. And they say, well, I'm sure you do know. So they never end up explaining what these things uh, in fact mean. And one member of the opposition actually says uh, that, you know, each one of the articles of the objectives resolution should be self-explanatory. Uh, because if you keep it open-ended, uh, then you really can't develop principles around an open-ended, you know, theo uh, uh, theoretical statement because you really don't know uh, what it what it what it would mean. Uh, so, while sovereignty of God might be argued as an abstract and thus compatible, perhaps at some level uh, with the notion of democracy, the real issue was that the sovereignty was not being delegated to the people, but to the state, and the state therefore becomes supreme. Furthermore, that the vagueness of the limits prescribed by God on the exercise of his sovereignty created another problem, uh, because that would lead uh, the mem members to ask, uh, well, who is going to define those limits? Now, uh, a lot of the members of the Assembly, uh, mainly, of course, uh, from the Congress, said that let's reframe this and say, well, the national sovereignty be belongs to the people. Pe 
belongs to the people of God or that God has delegated all of the sovereignty to the people. And the government consistently kept voting down those resolutions and said, well, either take it or leave it. This is not going to change. Uh, So so that, I think, uh, becomes a very interesting uh, uh, notion by by the end of it. Now, uh, again, the opposition is saying, well, we must make it clear that the basic fundamental principle of the Constitution must be to make the people understand it as a government of the people, by the people and for the people. Uh, But again, the government says, no, this is something that is inherent in the objectives resolution and we really don't need to uh, spell it spell it spell it out then one member of the constitutional assembly says well who are these people and i think that is a very interesting interesting question and no one really uh, uh, picks up on this uh, because if you are delegating in an islamic republic and, and that is what pakistan was going to become Uh, sovereignty even to the people. Well, which kind of people are these? And there was a very interesting discussion uh, by this uh, Molana Shabir Ahmed Osmani, uh, where he actually very clearly says uh, that these people to whom the sovereignty has been delegated have to be the people who actually believe in the Quran and Sunnah. Because if you are going to make a constitution based on the Quran and Sunnah, how can you give sovereignty, uh, 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 the exercise of sovereignty uh, to a people that don't believe in it? Uh, And this I found really, really fascinating. And he said this, I think, on the third day of the debate. And uh, it doesn't get picked up either in the newspapers or by any editorial comment. But I I think that really uh, touches the crux of the problem. And I quote from him, and he says, uh, The Islamic State is not a state in its own right with authority inherent in it. It is a state to which authority has been delegated. The real sovereignty belongs to God. Man is the vice regent on earth and dis and discharges his obligations in this respect alone with religious duties on the principle of a state within a state and within the limits prescribed by God. And it is evident, um, this is a a continuation of the quote, it is evident that such a state which is founded on some principles, be it theocratic or secular, can only be run by those people who believe in those principles. People who do not subscribe to those ideas may have a place in the administrative machinery, but they cannot be entrusted with the responsibility of framing the general policy of the state or deal with matters vital to its safety and integrity. And I think, you know, in three or four lines, he's actually defined uh, where this objective's resolution is going to lead to. Uh, And now I do realize, you know, I do have still a number of pages left, but I think I do realize I have gone over uh, by five minutes by now. Uh, But I think by now, perhaps I've given you an idea that the Constituent Assembly uh, uh, debate over this was, I think, one of the most critical moments in uh, after the after the creation of Pakistan and the objectives resolution uh, by its wording, uh, not only limited uh, the, the scope for the future constitutions of Pakistan, uh, by its wording, also uh, complicated. And later on, of course, the whole discussion comes about demis and all of those kinds of things. You know, what will be the actual status of non, 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 non-Muslims in Pakistan? But in fact, its wording, by its, uh, uh, by its meaning, disenfranchises a large part of Pakistan at that time and then continues to, to do so. And uh, therefore, I think we really need to closely look at this uh, resolution, which some people have, uh, but not very deeply where it actually, you know, became the ground of, it actually became that consensus on which Pakistan was built. So 
in fact, you know, as uh, you know, later works uh, um, um, claim that about the Lahore resolution, which is perhaps not really true, but you know, that's how it was viewed. Uh, the objector's resolution really becomes uh, the basic foundational document of Pakistan, uh, but then it, of course, throws in all these uh, questions which have yet to be answered uh, and yet to be squared within a very modern um uh, constitution of Pakistan, and hence you have um, a lot of the constitution simply contradicting itself in Pakistan. Even now, you know, after three attempts at making a making a constitution, you still have a lot of the clauses uh, contradicting itself. And I think this is the, the, the real root cause of it. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.